Good morning. Jumped up there for prayer concerns. I forgot to even wish you a good morning. We are going to continue on in our study of the book of Titus today. We're going to be finishing out the first chapter today, which is Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God says this, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith and not pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. By their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for every good deed. Please be seated. I don't think there is anyone in the world that enjoys having those tough conversations, whether it be a confrontational thing or, or uh, just something, something that you need to talk about that you know is going to make you uncomfortable and them uncomfortable, and yet we all have to have them from time to time. When we think about tough conversations, we often think about needing to give person bad news or a negative performance review. If you've ever been a boss or a manager or some sort of supervising person, there's probably come a point in your life where you had to have a talk with somebody who wasn't a good employee, who maybe had made some mistakes or was still learning the job, and you had to give them some tough feedback, some tough criticism in order to make them a better employee or to just warn them that if things don't improve, that they might have to seek employment elsewhere. Maybe we think about discipling conversations that we have with our kids and, and, and maybe having to tell our kids bad news. Sometimes when we are disciplining our children, we have to have tough conversations about with them. We have to tell them about things that are not good, maybe about a friend that is not good that they don't want to hear about or that they can't go do something that they really want to do because that will put them in a position that may cause them to sin or lead them down a path that we do not want them to go on. Think about the fact that there are think about those times when when we lose a loved one and we have to explain that to our children when our grandparents pass away and we have to explain to them that that that, that our, our loved one is no longer with us and, and is, is gone to be with the Lord. These are tough conversations that we often cannot avoid. Maybe we have a friend or a family member who is making poor decisions slipping into maybe some form of addiction or in a relationship that is going to do them harm and ultimately leave them used up and devastated. 
We love our friend, we love our family member, and we know that if they continue on the course of, of, that they are currently set on, that it will lead ultimately to destruction. And yet we have to step into their lives and lovingly tell them that they need to change course. To quit, to flee, to repent, and to seek the Lord. These are hard conversations to have sometime. And they make us nervous and they make us anxious. And if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us, including me, often try to avoid these conversations at all costs. We pray to God that someone else will have that conversation with them. Someone maybe that, that doesn't is less invested, maybe someone in their life that they may respect them more or really just has nothing to lose, or maybe just maybe they'll figure it out on their own. But often, we recognize that tough conversations still fall on us to be had. And odds are, if you have lived enough life, you have been a part of some hard conversations. You've had to be the one that started them. You've had to, been the, had to be the one who received them. You may think about those times where you had to have tough conversations and you asked people, how do I do this? I know that I've done that in my time, whether it was um, being a young man and having to decide how to break up with a girl, which is the most traumatic experience for any young man. Or um, it was having a conversation with a church member or a friend, and I asked, how do I have this conversation? I think most often we hear the advice of just get it over with. Do it quick, like a Band-Aid. Have you ever heard anything like that? If you know you need to say it, just say it. If we ask ourselves why... Why is it that we have to have these conversations? Why is it that it's best to just do it and not let it keep going on and dragging on and dragging on? I think almost all of us would give the same answer because it will be far worse if we do not. In our passage this morning, Paul is preparing Titus for some tough conversations. And these are tough conversations that, that Titus is going to be having with other people. And there are tough conversations that Titus needs to train these soon-to-be elders on how to have. Because there's going to come a day, and Paul knows this because Paul has already entrusted Titus to this work, but there's going to come a day where Titus will have to entrust someone else to that work. And so he has to prepare them to have tough conversations with tough people that they are not going to enjoy, but are important for the health and for the sake and for the safety of the church. These conversations are tough. But ironically, they are tough not because they are bad news, which is often what we fear and, and, and get anxious about and struggle with, but because there were people who were turning the good news into something it shouldn't be. And so it came on to Titus and these future elders to have tough conversations in order to keep the good news of the gospel pure. 
as we dive into the text, we are immediately confronted with these people, these men that they must uh, address. And really what we see in verse 10 is actually happened. The initial conversation has started back in verse nine and has sprung into this conversation. If we look back just a few lines in verse nine, it says this, that that these elders will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict this good doctrine. And so he already, Paul has already kind of introduced the idea that there are people that were coming into the church and they were contradicting the good, right, proper teachings of the church. He goes on to remind Titus that there are not only just one, but many who will try to contradict this good teaching. Paul Paul clearly has someone in mind while he is having this conversation, and he gives us a clue to who those people are. I would make the argument today that we still deal with people like this in the church and in the capital C church today. Let's take a moment and look specifically at verse 10 and the clues that we get just here. He says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially from those of the circumcision. Well, this is a clue for us about what was going on. And based on our knowledge of of early church history and what was going on in the days of the apostles, we get an idea of who these people were. These were people that, that also claimed to profess to know God, verse 16, and that they were turning away from the truth in verse 14. What we are likely dealing with here is a group of people known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were individuals who had grown up in the Jewish faith. They had practiced Judaism their whole life and, and at some point had heard the good news of the gospel and had, and had received it and had become a part of the church. However, they began to passionately maintain that in order to truly be saved, in order to truly be a Christian, a person must also still keep the whole law of Moses. This caused new believers, specifically Gentile new believers, to begin to doubt their salvation. Imagine for a moment today that you were somewhere and you had maybe a close personal friend and they shared the gospel with you. And you and they told you that 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 there was a God in heaven who loved you, that you were a sinner and that that even though God loved you and he, he made he gave you the law and he tried to show you the way that you could have a relationship with him. But you didn't keep that law because you couldn't keep that law, might I add. And you had sinned against God. And because of that, judgment was coming. But God, in his infinite love for you, had sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins, to pay the price for your sins, to, to pay the full penalty of your sins. And then he rose from the grave three days later in order to give you new life in Christ, eternal life. And that if you would confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you would be saved. And you heard this from your friends, just like you heard this right now. And you said, oh, my goodness. That is exactly what I need in my life. I can feel the sin. I can feel my lostness. I can feel my brokenness. I know that I am a sinner and that I need to trust in the Lord. And you gave your life to Jesus. Praise the Lord. That would be a wonderful day. What a day of rejoicing that would be. And then imagine for just a moment, a few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, you went into a church. And when you went into that church, you'd never been in a church before, so you don't really know how a church acts. So guess how you dressed when you came into that church? 
the same way you dress every other day. And you come in and you've got your tennis shoes on and you've got jeans on. They're nice jeans, but they're just jeans. And you've got a t-shirt on and you like to keep your hair a little bit long. And you know what? You've lived through life a little bit and you've got some experience. So you've got a tattoo on your arm. Maybe it's because you served in the military. Maybe it's because you really, really, really like Cocoa Puffs. And so you have the, the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs bird on your arm. And then you come into that church and you're wearing jeans and you're wearing a t-shirt and your hair is down over your shoulders and that tattoo of, of the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs is on one arm and the army is on the army star is on the other arm and someone comes up to you and says, hey, you need to get saved. And you were kind of confused because first off, they had not even said something like, hello, my name is Josh. What's your name? And they say, no, no, you need to get saved. And you said, I've got great news for you. I am saved. And they said, no, 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 you're not. And you said, no, no, I am. I, I've heard the good news of the gospel and I've believed and, and I've, I've made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. And they go, no, 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 no. But in order for you to get saved, first off, if you're a lady, you need to wear a dress. And I couldn't help but notice that you have some artificial colors in your hair. You need to get rid of that. Oh, and by the way, jeans, those aren't really appropriate for church. And I couldn't help, young man, but notice that, that your hair is touching your collar on your back. You might want to get that looked at. And those tattoos, Jesus could die for all your sins, but not for those tattoos. You're either going to have to get those removed or just make sure you wear long sleeves from now on. What would you feel about that church or that person? What would you start to wonder about your salvation and the good news that you had heard? I would dare say you would begin to question all of it. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus died for my sins. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus paid the price. I thought when I placed my hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ that all of my sins were paid for by Jesus. It seems like a crucifixion would get the job done. Why is it that suddenly I need to worry about my hair and my clothes and my skin and my choice of music? Did Jesus die for my sins or not? And who is this person to tell me all the things that I need to change about my life just by looking at the clothes I wear and the way I look? And yet this was exactly what was happening in the church in Crete. And people began to come in and say, no, 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 you can't eat those foods. You need to eat these foods. No, 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 no. you can't dress like that. You need to dress like this. No, 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 you can't cut your hair or shave your beard. You need, to, you need to look like us. You need to talk like us. You need to eat like us. Because if you really want to get to heaven, you need to do what we say. I would dare say for anyone in this room, that would rock your faith desperately, especially as a new believer. And unfortunately, I think it does happen in the church today. And I pray to God that it does not happen in this church building. And so these people were there, and it wasn't just a few, it was many. 
There was many. Paul doesn't give us a number, but it was a lot of people. And this message was starting to get mixed up and it was upsetting whole households. And the, and the scary thing is, and the sad thing is, is what was upsetting is they didn't know what the truth was. We come to people and we present them Jesus and we tell them he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father except through him. And then there's these other people that blow that up. And Paul is telling Titus, and Titus is going to be telling these would-be elders, we have got to deal with this. Because there are tough conversations coming down the road. But let's take a closer look at these teachings of these would-be Judaizers and, and what was going on, and then especially how what, what they were doing may impact us today and how we may, may discern the truth from the lies first thing I want you to notice about these Judaizers and their teachings is that they were convinced that their religiousness would make them closer to God. Really, specifically, that they were convinced that their religiousness would get them to God. Notice again, verse 14 of Titus chapter 1, he says this, he says, not, do not pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. These people were obsessed with commandments and rules and laws and regulations and outward things that they were getting, that they were getting. And the scary thing is, is they were getting these things from somewhere that was not the Bible. That's why I want to just say this as a little side note. They'll call this a freebie. This is why you need to know your Bible. Because no matter how much you know me, it is very possible that I will mess up. And I praise the Lord that there have been people in this church and there are still people in this church that will come up to me after a service and say, I re you said this today. And I'll go, yeah. And they'll say, but doesn't the Bible say this, which is different? And I'll go, yeah. I'm like, so did, was that a mistake? And I'll go, yeah. And that's Okay. Because your ultimate authority on who God is and how to have a relationship with Him and how to bring glory to God isn't me. It's this. And so they were teaching things and these were concepts and precepts and, and commandments of men and they were going to places that were not the Bible in order to understand who God is. And because of that, they were upsetting families and turning away from the truth. Much like the Pharisees who challenged Jesus, these men believed that Jewish tradition, that's these myths that it talks about, were necessary in order to have a relationship with God. We see this is furthered in the following verse that talks about purity, about to the pure all things are pure, but to, to the impure that nothing is pure. All of that is a reference to those food laws, those cleanliness laws that we have and that they have in the Jewish faith. And they were concerned, even obsessed with this ideas of purity and cleanliness and what you could touch and what you could not touch and how you needed to eat and how you needed to not eat and whether you washed your hands and did this and did that and, and steps A through Z just to have a burrito. And in, what, in truth, their religious exercises were just external and they were missing the entire point. To give you an example of this, I want to turn to Matthew and in the book of Matthew, we read these words. It says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus talked. After Jesus talked to the crowd, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but that which proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Think of how many other things we could put into that same context. It is not what you put into your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth that that defiles you. It is not the hair that grows on your head, but the thoughts of your head that defile you. It is not the clothes that you put on your body, but some of the things you do with your body that defile them. God is not concerned about these external things. He is concerned about whether you have fully and completely surrendered yourself to God and to his will. And yes, that will show itself in obedience. And yes, that obedience will be to the word of God. But far be it from us to turn our traditions into requirements for the kingdom of heaven. You do not need to have your name on a Baptist membership log in order to go to heaven. You do not need to wear jackets or have a certain haircut in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You do not need to like fried chicken in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it sure makes life on this world better. What matters for you to enter the kingdom of heaven is that you have surrendered your heart to Jesus. And anything that someone tries to add to that truth is corrupting and false and should be immediately rejected. Not only do we see that these, these Judaizers try to convince people that their religiousness brings them to God, but they also try to create fences for the gospel. I want you to notice again this little prophet prophecy thing in verse 12. He says, One of themselves, a, a prophet of their own, says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. If we think about it, this group wanted the people of Crete to do certain things and they were willing to belittle, coerce, and even guilt trip them into following them. Even if that meant being about name calling. This prophet, believe it or not, was this was a saying among the Crete people from a, a, someone long ago, and it was something that these Judaizers had picked up on and was using to both t- to intimidate and coerce the Crete believers in order to do what they wanted. Think about it. If you are making a statement that says you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get to heaven, it would be easy to then say, and if you don't do what I say, then you are a liar, you are an evil beast, and you are a lazy glutton. Paul's follow-up statement always kind of makes me chuckle because we could read it a bunch of different ways. But in verse 13, he says, the testimony is true. But what's funny about this is he's not saying, yes, Cretans are these awful things. He's saying, no, they are. He says, these people, these prophets are saying things like Cretans are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And he says, but you know who that's true of? The people that are trying to draw them away from the truth. He says, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. But he's not talking about the Cretans that are trying to figure out what's going on and trying to seek out the truth. He is talking about those who have come in and preached a false gospel trying to upset households. He ends up flipping it to apply to them. The reality is, is that the gospel is for everyone. And it does not come with some sort of requirement 
Nothing that they tried to add to it, but only that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 makes this abundantly clear for us today when Paul writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all those who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't get to say those people don't deserve to hear the gospel. We don't get to do it. After this whole message was written, I get on a, in, a, in my van and I drive up with a youth group and I spend a couple of hours working with a, 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 a church planter who is of Indian descent, ministering among people of Indian descent. And when you walk in to one of these grocery stores, they have an entire section for all of their cultic worship. For their three million plus gods. And you can buy a statue and you can buy incense and you can buy candles and you can buy stands and you can buy all of this stuff. And that was the first thing the pastor wanted to show me. He said, look at what's here and look at all this stuff. And he began to explain what God is doing through him and, and for the sake of the gospel. And I just stood in awe of how the spirit was working through this man. And he would be so quick to say, I'm not that smart. I'm not that fancy. I don't have I don't have all the pieces of paper. I don't have big name churches and people supporting me. He goes, but I'm telling people about Jesus and that's what they need. And who would it be for a church like us or anybody who claims to be Christ to look at, at this person who has immigrated here from India, who is, maybe has his own personal God that he follows and said, oh, they'll never believe, don't even try. That's an insult to the Holy Spirit. It's almost like we're saying, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't believe God can do anything. Because I don't believe he can save those people. And Romans 10 tells us very different. For he says that God, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whether they were born and raised in Kentucky, black, white, or any of the other colors that are out there, whether they grew up in a traditional home, a broken home, or a same-sex home, all of them need to hear the good news of the gospel. Because I can tell you one thing that I know for certain is that if God could save me, then he can save anyone. The last thing I want you to notice about these Judaizers is this, is that they wanted personal gain from their work. Notice again, verse 11. He says, for these people must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Their teachings not only caused problems within these families, but it also became a platform for them to raise support and to get their needs met. This was ultimately their desire. They would go into a place, they would set sail, land on the island of Crete, begin to do all of this stuff. And then as part of that, they'd say, now support us. Give us money, take care of us, but give us food, give us a place to stay that's the least you could do for, for God. And they would begin to, to work these people and guilt trip these people and convince these people that in order for them to truly be obedient, then they had to support the work of their ministry no matter what. And they did it for their own gain. The passage itself uses a term called sordid game, which I know is probably not something you use on the daily. What they did is they found ways to make profit off of the obedience of others. 
convincing them to follow, and it was dishonest and it was wrong. It was sordid in and of itself that they were preaching a false gospel and expecting money in return. But the idea of sordid gain is that you manipulate the situation in order to gain a profit on something that you did not earn and you did not produce. This is why Paul says to Titus that the elders should be not fond of sordid gain in Titus 1 verse 7. Timothy also said it this way, and he said that they should be free from the love of money. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 3. I will tell you right now, and I've said this before, and I don't think it's controversial, but I don't really pull punches on it, is that if you meet a pastor or a church leader, whether it is a pastor, Sunday school teacher, deacon, elder, trustee, evangelist, associational guy, convention guy, and they tend to obsess over money, that is a huge red flag. I have serious problems when I know pastors that are, and this is a little judgmental, so show some grace here. Show me some grace, Sharon. But when I meet a full-time pastor, and as well as being a full-time pastor, he has multiple side hustles to make as much money as he can, that is a huge red flag to me. Because when we look at the very qualifications of an elder, it should says they should be free from the love of money. And that's what these people did not have, is they loved the money. They loved the food. They loved the comfort. They loved the gift. They, they encouraged it. They, they pursued it. They even kind of forced it upon the people so that they could get as much as they could. They saw it as a means to personal gain. But our faith ought not be wrapped up in riches and wealth of this world which means our leaders should not be as well. So now we have a picture of these Judaizers. They were coming in, they were promoting this, this Jesus plus the law type of thing. They were convincing people to doubt their salvation. And in doing so, they were upsetting households. They were creating doubt and fear in salvation. They were doing so in order to gain for their own personal stash and their own wealth to live luxuriously and comfortably. comfortably there you go. Um, it'll get out there eventually. And then there comes the question of how do we respond to these people? Paul uses very harsh words to communicate what Titus and these future elders ought to do to respond to these false teachers. Verse 11 says they must be silenced. Verse 13 says that we should reprove them severely, even saying that they are, in verse 16, worthless for any good deed. Paul calls them to address false teachings directly and quickly in order to keep them from spreading. I heard once uh, in a, a book about dealing with those tar- hard conversations, and he used the analogy of a soccer goalie. And, and I know that, 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 that we're not all probably really up on soccer, but it just humor me for a moment. I've been watching four-year-olds play soccer. I think I got the whole game figured out by now. And every once in a while in soccer, you have, you know, the ball's kicking around and you have that stuff. And every once in a while, someone will break away from the group. Something will happen, a miss kick, who knows what. And one player will, will break away from the crowd and he will have a clear shot on the goal. And when you get to that point, really the only people left in the whole world is the person coming to score and the goalie. 
And a goalie, there it's not like hockey. The goalie's goal is much larger than they are. And so there's really no way that they can stand just under the goal and spread out like this and even hope to cover the goal. And so they have a decision. What am I going to do about this person that is coming in order to, to score a goal? And they could hold back and say, well, maybe he'll trip. Maybe lightning will strike him. Maybe he'll fall on his own shoelaces or maybe at that very moment a gopher will pop his head up and create a hole and he'll stumble and fall. Would these be good strategies for a goalie? Is this going to prevent his goal? No. But I honestly think that's what we do sometimes when it comes to hard conversations. Oh boy. Oh, I'm going to have to have this talk. Maybe, maybe they'll get struck by lightning. Maybe, maybe something, we'll, we'll think, maybe they'll get, maybe they'll just, they'll just, Get a job somewhere else and just be gone. Be someone else. Maybe something like that. But the reality is if that goalie wants to stop that person from the goal, he's got to cut off his angles. And so a goalie will actually leave the goal and he will run out to that person in order to make it harder and harder and harder for that person to try to kick around them. And he will attack it head on in hopes of cutting off his angles, stopping the ball, and then giving himself time for assistance. I want you to notice that at no part of this command regarding these false teachers, or so I want you to notice one thing about what he says about these false teachers. He goes out to meet them. He says this, verse 13, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Paul says that we are to run out to meet them, we are to rebuke them, we are to address them, we are to silence them, not so that we beat them down, have ultimate victory, crush their hope, their spirits, or their desire to do anything, but rather that they may be sound in faith. The goal of reproof, of tough conversations, of anything like that, is to see the individual restored to proper teachings, brought back into the body of Christ to accomplish our work in the nations. That's a hard, that's a, that's a struggle sometimes, isn't it? We live in a culture today that thrives on rivalry and division and enmity. If I yell out right now, go big blue, half of you are going to hiss. If I, if I yell, go big red, the other half will hiss. And if I yell, go tigers, all of you will hiss. We divide ourselves over silly things like that. We divide ourselves over political parties. We divide ourselves over whether noodles go in chili. We divide ourselves over so many things. And what happens is, is sometimes when divisions come in the church, we begin to divide ourselves and begin to look at the other people as the enemy. Well, these people want praise and worship music, but, but these people want the hymns. Well, we can't get along. Well, these people want Wednesday night services at 6 o'clock, and these people want Wednesday night services at 7 o'clock, and so we can't get along. And what happens is we forget that we have all been saved by grace, by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and that we were all once sinners and now have been brought into the family of God. And we forget the fact that that person that might disagree with me is not my enemy but my brother or sister in Christ. 
And so when we have disagreements, when we have conflict, when those conflicts are about the very truth and nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may look at somebody across the aisle from me and let make no mistake, this is not about noodles in chili. This is about what must I do to be saved? It matters. But even as we look at that person who is maybe promoting a false gospel and false beliefs, we don't look at that person and say, he is my enemy. We look at that person and say, this is my brother in Christ who needs to be restored to the truth. Now, doesn't that change the way you approach it? Doesn't that change the way that you use your words? Doesn't that change the way that you position yourself? Instead of coming out like this, you and I need to have a talk. We start to go to the person and say, hey, I heard you say something and I, I, I want to get some clarity and I want to have a conversation about maybe your understanding of grace. And we speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. Galatians 6 1 says it best, in my opinion, when it says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. While it may seem like a contradiction, I truly believe that we can both rebuke severely and restore with gentleness. Did you know that? I believe that. I ain't saying I figured it out yet, but I believe it. And that we can come to somebody and we can be stern and we can be clear and we can we cannot give an inch and say, listen, what you are teaching is wrong. But do so in a way that shows love and grace and patience with the desire to see them restored. I believe we can do both. We must hold fast to the truth. But in that same way as Galatians 6 1 says, we ought to also remember that we too were once sinners in rebellion towards God. And as we address false teachings, we must extend the same grace to them that God has extended to us through Christ. We do not compromise and we do not allow wrong teachings to continue within the church and within, to, within our, our sphere of influence. But we also patiently, gently instruct everyone so that they may be convinced and restored to the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The issue at the heart of what is being talked about is what is the gospel? And the gospel is not a list of rules and regulations that someone came up with for you to follow in order to get to heaven. The gospel is recognizing the truth that we are all sinners and that we can't get into heaven. We can't go and be where God is based on our own activities, our own actions, our church membership, or our Sunday morning habits. The good news of the gospel is that God came and did it all for us. That he lived the life we couldn't live, and then he took our punishment on the cross so that we gave Jesus our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. And the Bible says that if you believe that, and along with that, that God affirmed 
that sacrifice affirmed that penalty, that he recognized that Jesus paid it all in doing so, rose Jesus from the grave. If you believe that and you can make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, then you will be saved. And if you are here today and you have spent your whole life thinking that you needed to do something, you needed to be good, you needed to do good, you needed to put money in a plate or, or something like that in order to get to heaven, we offer this good news to you today. And if you are ready to quit trying to get to God on your own and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he did it for you, then we invite you to respond today. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we praise you that the good news of the gospel is actually good news. That the good news of the gospel is not try harder, do more, be better. But that the good news of the gospel is I did it. I did it for you. I did it on your behalf. I did it because I love you. Just place your faith in me. God, I pray that we as a church will be passionate about communicating the gospel and making sure that everyone understands the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fight off the temptation to change the gospel, to alter the gospel for our own personal benefit or influence. God, that we would be a church that faithfully communicates and proclaims the real, true, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that people will hear it and that through that they will be saved. Father God, if there is anyone here today that needs to surrender, surrender their life to Jesus, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they talk to me, that they talk to whoever they came with, that they come to you, that they cry out on the name of the Lord and are saved. And God, I pray for the rest of us that we will never lose sight of the cross so that we might keep the gospel in the center of our lives, in the center of our hearts, and not allow anyone or anything to sway us to the right or to the left. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.